listening to a Living Word Family Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about Living Word Family Church, make sure to check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Living Word Family Podcast. Thank you for uh, tuning in, downloading us, and uh, listening, being with us. We thank you for, for that. And with us today, uh, Pastor Scott, our senior pastor of Living Word Family Church, Pastor hey, Scott Millis. Welcome. Glad you're here, as always. Glad to be here. Uh, as well as our man of the tech, Zach <laughs> Benson. Thanks for being here. And then Hello. we have a special guest with us today, but I will let Pastor Scott... Uh, do the honorable introductions there. Very so excited, very excited today. Guy who I've uh, been uh, one of my favorite people of all time. Uh, just a dear, dear friend going back to 1983. Wow. And uh, now an accomplished scholar and uh, legendary athlete from Philo, Illinois. We are delighted to have with us today Dr. Joe Thomas, uh, professor of Christian history at Urbana Theological Seminary and Director of Institutional Development at Judah. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Wow. Uh, husband of Dr. Audra Thomas, uh, emergency medicine at Carl, and father of Christabel and Maisie. Wow, that's impressive. That's, and that, you know what, I just just from memory right now, didn't even have that in my notes. Say hi to the people, Joe. <laughs> hey, hi everyone. Great to be here. Uh, Welcome. Thank you, uh, Pastor Scott and uh, everyone else. Uh, Excited to be here to talk about uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Yes, yes. indeed. That's why you're here. We've, uh, this, this is something we've, we've been uh, talking about for the last few weeks, uh, over a month now. There, yeah. there was a guy actually locally who, who I, I thought about having come in to talk about not the Reformation, but some things leading up to the Reformation. And then at Dondom, we've got this great resource right down the road. Be a great excuse to see you again because it's... Even though we're living this close, hardly ever uh, make time for each other. And uh, who better to have come in and talk about this, and what better time? I, if, if I can tell a short story here. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, I met uh, Pastor Scott at uh, Parkland College, right. and uh, I was not a believer at the time. And it was the fall of uh, 1983, and um, I met uh, Pastor Scott uh, working uh, at Parkland as a sort of a student job right. and um, had been searching for something uh, for probably a good two, three years, something like that. And uh, Scott became just this great dialogue partner. Every time we'd work together, uh, we'd take these long walks as part of our job and uh, we'd have these great, great conversations um, that uh, that we would have about who's Jesus and and uh, just this remarkable person who, of course, I, I knew about. I, I'd grown up in a, in a church, but it was a pretty nominal uh, church. And, and uh, with Scott and some others, uh, Christ was just reintroduced to me in a a new way, in, in a in a way uh, that that he was as, as spoken of in the Gospels. And um, uh, on November. Ninth, what's the date today? Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable! Wow. On this day, uh, thirty. How many years ago was that? Uh, so I'm fifty-three. That was nineteen. Is that thirty-four? Thirty-four. Wow. If it was nineteen eighty-three at Parkland, yeah, 30, 34, years. thirty-four years ago. Wow. This evening, thirty-four years ago. This evening, 
uh, I was at uh, a film about by right. a guy by the name of Francis Schaefer. Yeah. And at the end of the yeah. film, this uh, traveling person came up and introduced himself. And the first thing he said was, you know, at films like this, it's uh, rare that a non-Christian would be here. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit took that comment and inside of me started sort of spinning this question, you know, why would a, why would a non-Christian come to this? Why would a non-Christian come to this film? Because it was explicitly a Christian film. And all of a sudden, this, this voice inside of me, which I now know is the Holy Spirit, says to me, are you a Christian? And up to that point, if you had asked me, I would have said, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a good guy. Right. You know, I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> um, and, and all of a sudden, uh, that question that was posed to me, and I said, I said back, I said, you know, I think so. And then this voice said to me, well, after all that you've been learning over the last about three months, wouldn't you know so? If Christ is who uh, he says he is, wouldn't I, you know if you're a Christian? And I thought to myself, I should know. <laughs> and, and so I started sort of going through, you know, do I, uh, you know, kind of a, a series of questions. Do I believe in God? Yeah, I, I'd always believed in God. That was not an issue for me. You know, and I kind of, you know, do I, do I believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I believe in Jesus, you know. But do I believe, you know, he really was the son of God, that he was the savior, that he died for my sins? And I kind of went through this whole litany of, of questions. <clears throat> and at the end, I'd said yes to every single question. And, and so I just kind of paused for a second. I'm, this guy's still talking up front. I have no idea what he's saying because this, <laughs> this whole thing's happening inside. And all of a sudden, you know, in my spirit, I just say, I go, God, I want to be a Christian. And at that moment, nothing spectacular happened. Uh, in fact, the talk up front was kind of winding up. So I, I don't even know how long this dialogue lasts. But I left, and my good friend Mike Jeb, who was another dialogue partner during that same time period, Mike and, and Scott were kind of the two key guys. Uh, I left. I go home. I wake up the next morning. And I'm not lying to you or your listeners. The world was on fire. Everything looked different. Yeah. Wow. And it was, it was as if there was like a, 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 a kind of a, a shine to creation that I hadn't seen before. Wow. And this, wow. this empty part inside of me that had been there. Yeah, I mean, forever, but, but you know, when I was aware of it, been, been there for two, three years, I'd wrestled with depression, things like that, just lifted, and all of a sudden, I had this joy that, that was just amazing. I couldn't believe it. In fact, I, I remember saying to myself, wow, I, I, can this last? <laughs> and here I am 34 years later to tell you, um, staying committed, staying plugged into God, following Christ, loving Jesus, it lasts. Yeah. Wow. So 34 years ago, thank you, Pastor Scott, for wow. being one of those dialogue partners. Wow. That's cool. That what Happy rebirth day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. What, and, and, yeah, thanks for including me. In part, in, in, in it, uh, it's an honor to be part of your story. That's, yeah. uh, that's a great, great thing. Hey, I don't think there's anything else we need to talk about. <laughs> thanks, for <laughs> thanks, everybody. Right. Yeah. Thank you for joining I, us. Yeah, we'll great. see you next thanks time. Thanks for sharing that. What a great <laughs> testimony. Uh, I can remember some of those early conversations, um, and I, I had um, I was one of those guys who the Bible describes as having a lot of zeal but not a lot of knowledge, 
And so I was always very zealous to see friends and new friends come to the Lord. And so whether you started it or I started it, I think it was inevitable that we would, we would talk about Christ. But I can remember early on asking you, you know, are you a Christian? And you answering in the affirmative. But I asked you to defend that. And what kind of took me back, because I figured you'd say yes, because that was a time when most people did consider themselves to be Christians. But I didn't think you were. I didn't think you were a bad person. I just didn't think you fit my definition of Christian. So when I asked you to define that, you gave a pretty good answer. I was like, huh, okay, I guess that's what I would say if somebody asked me. And yet somehow deep inside I'm thinking, why why do I still think he's not? And and you, you confessed to me later that, you had asked these questions. You knew the right answers to those. You just and and you probably again, as you just sort of indicated, you always kind of thought you were, yeah. but there's something missing. That's interesting. Yeah, I actually yeah. had a uh, Sunday school teacher in sixth grade. So this is a shout out to Sunday school teachers. Yeah. Um, at this same church, and uh, she had, I, I I now know I didn't know this at the time, and as a sixth grade, she had come up to Champaign Urbana and got caught up in a revival, and got saved. on like a a Friday or Saturday, comes in Sunday morning to our Sunday school and gives us the gospel. So I'd heard the gospel. Wow. And she even said to us, you know, if you want to become a Christian today, sign your name in the the Bible. We all had Bibles they'd given us. And so I did that. So I'd heard the gospel. And even all throughout high school, there were lots of people in, in different high school kind of campus ministry groups, People were always reaching out to me. But I got to tell you that the biggest problem that, that I encountered was that people kept telling me answers to questions that I wasn't asking. And, and so. Now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean by that is people were wanting to give sort of a straightforward, uh, hey, Joe, um, uh, you know, Jesus has died for your sin. And I'm like, hey, that's great, you know. But that's not the question I have. Right. The, the question I had was, what in the world are we doing down here? My, my questions were more, much more philosophically, theologically oriented and, and not sort of what we might think of as the, um, you know, the, uh, the traditional kind of gospel uh, plan of salvation. You know, I'd heard that. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I, I should have been wrestling with this, but I wasn't. I really wasn't wrestling with the question of sin, not because I wasn't a sinner. I was a, a, a deep sinner, but that wasn't what was foremost on my mind. And so uh, that's the whole reason I was at this Francis Schaeffer film, dialoguing with Mike Jeb and, and Pastor Scott. The existential crisis. It was, an, it was an existential crisis. It was a personal, spiritual crisis of meaning. And... Um, no, no one caught up on it. Nobody was speaking the language that I needed to hear. And so when uh, I met Pastor Scott and this other friend now, Mike Jeb, uh, these were the first people who, like, they got it. They got it. This guy, he's, he needs answers to different questions that, and here's the key point, that Christ also answers. And, and so that was a revelation to me. Wow. That Christ wow. was the answer to all the questions, right? Yeah. He wasn't just an answer to the sin question. He was yeah, an answer to the whole meaning of life question. Wow. And that's very philosophical, and I get it. Most people are not, you know, as philosophically inclined as I am. But for people like me, uh, the right 
uh, I needed the right answers to the right questions, not wow. the right answers to the questions that I wasn't. Wow. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. let me ask you this. Uh, I don't want to get too far off track, but you raise an excellent point. We've been working with our students in youth group last several weeks on a series um, that's geared towards uh, helping them to share their faith. You know, like, so the first part we tackled the fear of sharing your faith. And the next part we tackled something else. And then the next part we were working through and just uh, were working on even last night, that gospel acrostic. Um, uh, for the ministry, the lessons that we're working in, it's, uh, they, they, give a, they give a point of the gospel for each letter of the gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L. And so we're working on that. But that lends itself towards not being necessarily formulaic. I mean, it more or less gives them a, a roadmap real quick to remember the, the seven basics, you know, sharing your faith. God created us to be with him. Our sins separated us. Sins can't be paid for on our own, you know, so on and so forth. So from your experience and your perspective, what is rather than, um, and I still think that's important, but rather than our students opening a, up a conversation kind of with these quote-unquote seven basics or this foundation. In your experience, do you think there's a better way to approach that, or do you think it's just a matter of on a case-by-case basis based on what the person's interested in and what the questions are that they're asking? Yeah, I think it's it's case-by-case, person-by-person. And, and this is why I'm a huge advocate that you just have to build relationships. I, I yeah. agree with that too. So if, and here's, the, here's you know, there's several points to that, but but the first one is, a person is going to be disrespected if you come at them with the gospel, and 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 you don't. They don't even know who you are, and right. you don't even know who they are. Um, you know, they're going to feel like uh, this is like cheapened. You know, like you're selling some consumer good. Right. Uh, and that's the that's the problem as I see it. When it when it falls into kind of a consumerism, right? I'm the salesperson, and you're the person I'm trying to sell something to. When it's at that point, and and, and most people are sincere and good-hearted. They're not trying to do that. And, but, but it's easy for us to do that, to fall into that, that trap. I think you're prevented from falling into that trap if you just take the time to get to know people yeah. and, right. and build relationships with them. This, and this is the hardest thing, let's be honest, right? We, we are brought up in a culture that wants to see results, wants to see results now, Right, we want numbers, we want stats, we want we want all of that. But uh, Christ spent three years hanging out primarily with twelve, a little more with three, and a little less with a little larger group of people. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, three years. I guess my thought would be if Jesus Christ feels like it's important to invest at least three years. That's probably a good place for us to start. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. I've heard it several places that, you know, like when it comes to ministry in general, relationship trumps everything. I mean, kind of like you said, like if you're treating it like you're selling something to them, I mean, how often do we get sold something? And then that's where the customer service ends. Right. You know, if you have that relationship, then you're not, you're invested in that person. So even like if you get them saved and then they're, Maybe they backslide or ever whatever. They still have that relationship to hold them accountable. So, yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And, and if you build a relationship, you also get to hear what their actual real questions are. And and again, the revelation to me was, 
Jesus really is the answer to all the questions. Mm-hmm. We, we, the church, may have to work a little harder at, at trying to articulate how Jesus answers certain questions, especially if it's not in our wheelhouse, right? Uh, but if we do the, you know, if we do the, the, uh, the heavy labor, we can be in a position once we get to know people. And, and let me just say, it's got to be real friendship, too. It can't be a manipulative, you know. Right, right. Jesus loved these guys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he loved these guys. And, and so it has to be a, a genuine, heartfelt relationship. And, and let me tell you, that's only going to come th- through Christ, you know, because let's be honest, right, we don't like everybody. I mean, right? I have brothers and sisters in the Lord who I really don't like. Uh, I mean, Scott. yeah, but I mentioned I, we haven't seen each other in a number of years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I think it's I think that is is the starting point. Yeah, and um, you know the the sort of four spiritual laws approach. You know that that is pretty typical. Really, only works. In a, in a culture that's already heavily Christianized. That's why it worked mid-century in the United States, because it was a heavily churched, heavily Christianized country. Everybody, everybody at least had a pretty decent idea on what the gospel was. Most people had been in a church. And so you were starting, you know, if, if you're trying to get to point 10, right? If point 10 is someone... Um, accepting Christ um, into their life as their Lord and their Savior, you know, mid-20th century, most people were probably probably starting somewhere like at 5 to 7.5. Today, today, uh, in the younger generation, the so-called millennials, you know, most of them are at zero and really, in some cases, in the negative because they actually have anti-Christian Right. attitudes and prejudices so that i i'm completely convinced that that method may work with the the nominal church person right but as our our culture becomes less nominal christian and now uh, either non-christian or even anti-christian uh, relationships are, are just a must mm-hmm. are essential and that's what i would be teaching well, I teach at a seminary, right? So, so that is what I teach. But if I was teaching younger kids as well, it's like, A, don't stress out that you have to have, um, you know, like you're going to be graded and, and you have to have, right. you know, uh, X number of people, you know, come to faith at, by a certain time. Right. You know, really, I think um, we should think more in terms of um, uh, uh, who, who are we building relationships with? There, there, there's, your, there's your ledger, I just read this book res- recently called uh, Moneyball. You guys ever read Moneyball or seen the movie? I've yeah. heard of the movie, yeah. So it's this book about how analytics was brought to the game of baseball and, ch- and changed it forever. What you're seeing now in baseball uh, is, is a revolution that, that came through uh, this, this particular uh, uh, general manager for the Oakland A's, which is talked about in this book, Moneyball. And, and basically, the bottom line is uh, outs are precious, so don't try to get outs. Try to get people to first base any way you can. Walks. A walk is as good as a hit. And try to wear out the pitcher. Try to take as many pitcher, pitches as you can so you wear out the pitcher by the fourth, fifth inning instead of the starter, who is typically your best pitcher, right. able to go deep into it. 
And I read that book recently, and I was just thinking, okay, what is this, you know, Lord, what is this saying to us as a church, you know? We're trying, and here's what I took away from it. We're trying to hit a home run every time. Mm. I think what we should be trying to do is we're just trying to get the first base. We're just trying to build a relationship and first base, and we're building a deeper relationship to second base. And maybe, you know, if the Lord is willing and this person has a willing heart, someday they get to home base. But that's, that's how I think we probably need to start thinking about how we measure our evangelism. Our evangelism should be, you know, how many, how many people are we walking with at first base, second base, at third base, and then Lord willing, eventually, you know, at home. Um, and, and so that's, I, I think we probably need uh, a bit of a paradigm shift uh, in how we think about evangelism. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean there may be some who are ready. Sure. I, you know, I, I, it, it, it was a month for me, but it wasn't really, you know. Right. Th- this, would, this had been about a two-and-a-half, three-year odyssey. So yeah, right. if you don't get to know me, you never know that, yeah. right? Yeah. And Scott asked me the question, right? I knew the answer. If he had stopped there, <clears throat> I would have been left in my in, in where I was at. Which was, you know, a, a total sense of uh, uh, this existential crisis, as, as Pastor Scott put it. You know, but there was a willingness to go further. You know, wow. start at first base. You know, we went out to eat all the time. We had conversations, and not all of them were gospel centered, right? They're about all sorts of things. Yeah, you know, we were having fun together, um, and uh, and and so I was introduced to other Christians, right? So for the first time, I got a chance to see this sort of small little group of, of Christians um, who would get together at school. And, and I was like, wow, you know, like I've been with small groups of people. Right. There's something different here. And, and so there, there's that, right? It's this whole building into the person. And, and at the end of the day, our thought shouldn't be, you know, um, how many people come to faith because that's the Lord's doing. Our, our thought should be how many people are we building into their lives um, with strong relationships with the idea that, of course, the pre- most precious thing we have is the gospel. Uh, very good. good. Very good. I'm a big fan of the verse that says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles hmm. so that the, the very thing which they slander you, on account of that, they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, it's not so much a matter of, again, of you converting this person as much as it is a matter of when. I, I've always taken that, uh, that phrase, the day of visitation, not the Lord's coming again in judgment, but rather their personal encounter with Christ. It's my relationship with that person that's going to cause them to take the right step on that day. Amen. Uh, so, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, you... Um, you referred to something that I can remember you <coughs> sharing with me over 20 years ago over a pizza probably about this idea that the, the Christianized country that we live in. And I think you were talking about it in terms of uh, when we, we take this very um, rose-colored glasses look at the 50s or the 60s. Oh, the, the good old days back when everybody went to church and there was prayer in school and and your criticism of that view that it wasn't deep 
uh, it wasn't Christianity with deep roots. It was a, what you called, I think, a thin veneer of Christianity. And that it was the children in the 60s who looked back and saw through that. Like, this isn't a deep-rooted, yeah. meaningful thing. And that sort of sowed the seeds of the, the unrest of the 60s. And, of course, there were so many other uh, things going on. But, but I think it's a really narrow view to say, well, they got prayer out of schools and then the country went to hell. Well, there was a lot leading up to that, wasn't there? Uh, this, but yet still, even as late as uh, the 70s and 80s, a lot, a lot of times all you had to do to get somebody to the point of decision was to just show them something in the Bible. You, it, was a safe st- it was safe to assume that the starting point was, for most people, yeah, I believe the Bible. They might not have a clue what it says, but they at least thought they believed it. I know that was true for me. Uh, I didn't know what the Bible said, but I believed it. So when you showed me something in the Bible that indicated, oh, I need to do this, well, I could either do it or not, but I, I knew what was required for salvation, and you're right. You can't take that for granted anymore, not even close. Yeah, this was really brought home to me in uh, 1996. I left, my wife and I, we left the Midwest here, and we went out to uh, Los Angeles. And uh, she was doing a residency, and I was starting seminary. But I was working part-time at a bookstore, a big bookstore that now is uh, is, uh, is no longer with us That's right. because of Amazon. Um, <laughs> And uh, I remember I thought, you know what, I'm going to just try an experiment. I'm just going to try to be like the most upstanding uh, individual one can possibly imagine, right? Kind, loving, uh, work hard. I mean, you know, when people see me, and, and, and my thought was, you know, because sometimes you hear people saying, you know, hey, if you just live your life right, you know, people are going to see Jesus in you. Yeah. yeah. And I'd always been a little skeptical of that. I think yeah. you have to actually open your mouth. <laughs> and and uh, and so I went. So I went. I go. This is perfect, right? Nobody knows me, and I know none of them. This is absolutely brand new yeah. situation, oh, right? Yeah. And so I did that, and I was about a month in, and. Um, I'm walking with the manager, the store manager, and the store manager says to me, uh, hey, Joe, we, we are just so happy that, that you're here, and, uh, you know, you, you've just been such a great addition, and, and, you know, said all these really complimentary things, and then, and then she says to me, she goes, you know, Joe, you just have the best karma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And that's debunked. That, yeah, that yeah. confirmed to me. Yeah, you got to open your mouth because right. people are going to interpret you based on their, their own worldview. Yes, their yeah, worldview, yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Their own pair of glasses. Wow. Yeah, and I quickly said to her, I, I go, you know, I said, thank you. Those are very, very kind words. But let me let me just let you know that um, anything good that you see in me, it's because of Jesus Christ. Wow. If you had known me before Jesus Christ. Uh, you wouldn't be saying all these complimentary things. Wow. And, and, she, and of course, she just kind of looked at me and kind of like, huh. And then we moved yeah. on. Yeah. I don't know if you're a good <laughs> fit for this team anymore. <laughs> no, she didn't say no. that. I mean, she was a classic, you know, kind of whatever works for you type, yeah, of, right. type of person. Yeah. But for herself personally, right, it was a good person. It must be because they have good karma. And right. I was yeah. just like, wow, that just yeah. really opened my eyes. So. Interesting. Wow. 
So what else? What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, um, this is a good uh, segue into your bona fides here. You, uh, you, you've got your uh, bachelor's degree at Eastern Illinois, correct? Hey, nice. And uh, taught Eastern at Illinois. Judah for seven, eight years. How eight, long? Eight years. Eight years. Uh, taught history at Judah Christian High mm-hmm. School, mm-hmm. and it was after that that you guys moved out to LA. You went mm-hmm. to Fuller, correct? Working on your master's while your wife did her medical residency out there, correct? Correct. And so, tell do you want to tell us a little bit about your master's program out there? And or do you just want to fast forward onto your PhD work? Or? Yeah, I mean it was it was a great uh, moment to sort of uh, dig deep, you know, yeah. into uh, the scriptures. Um, you know, I learned New Testament Greek there, so that was something I'd always wanted to uh-huh. to learn. Uh, but primarily, I spent the time uh, looking at uh, Christian history, which which is my passion, and it gave me an opportunity to start. Uh, thinking about a question that I had that ultimately ended up in a book I published four years ago called Perfect Harmony. And, and the question I had was uh, about this, this group of churches, uh, holiness Pentecostal churches, late 19th, early 20th century, that practice uh, interracial, multi-ethnic church services, or you know, the church was that way. And, and this is in the era when Jim Crow is just sweeping and taking over the country. So the, these people are completely out of, out of step with what's right. going on in the culture. And, of course, all the other churches are also segregated. And so as I sort of learned more about this, uh, the question that uh, uh, came to me was, how did they read the Bible differently? than everybody else. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Because they had to be reading the Bible differently to come to the conclusion that the church is supposed to be multi-ethnic, interracial. And of course, in, in our country at that time, that primarily meant blacks and whites coming together. Though in Southern California, you would have had some Hispanics, some people from Asia. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I, I spent my seminary kind of doing papers and research around that area. And then when I went on for my PhD, I ended up doing my dissertation on that very topic. And, um, and it was great because, boy, when you do a dissertation, you, you, know, you kind of come up first with your idea. And, and, and uh, for me, at least, the way it worked was uh, I was really confident that my idea was correct, the way I was understanding this. And I had just a little bit of information to confirm it, but I needed a whole lot more information to make uh, to make a book, to make an argument. And uh, I can remember the very first two days that I was doing research over at Anderson University in Indiana, which is a was an old holiness school, part of the Church of God movement. And uh, I was I was going through microfilm, you know, the old the old microfilm. Uh, yeah. You put it on the roll, and zzz, you read the page. Zzz, you read the page, right? <laughs> Everything's moving forward, and and uh, and I have to read everything because I don't know where to look. And after t- and and I have to go through eighteen years. Oh man! <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is not going to work, and. You know, I remembered something that my church history professor taught me at Fuller, and he said this to us. Um, I, was on a, I was in a class about how do you do historical research. That was the class. And he taught us all these different methods and, and, and ways to approach it and think about it that were all just, you know, fantastic and really helpful. 
But he says this at, at the end. He says, he goes, and, and, and guys, he goes, um, here's one last thing. He goes, as Christian historians, we actually have one more tool in our box. And we're all kind of leaned in, right? Like, what, <laughs> what's, what, that? what's that? And, and he goes, prayer. He goes, I don't know how many times I've been stuck. And I've just, you know, I've asked God, help me, help me out. Help me out here. Help my thinking. Help, you know, just. And so I did that. And the next day I went in and I started to realize that the, the headlines, these were, these were like journals that I'm going through. The headline, where I found the helpful information, the headline to that particular article usually contains certain keywords. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, that may be a key to bypassing 90% of the stuff, <laughs> you know, that I don't have time to read. And lo and behold, it worked. So that day, I, I, I basically tested the theory. And, and probably 50% of the time, when it had certain key words, it had information that I was looking for. Which for research, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's totally amazing. 50%. Right. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so I, I, I collected, I kind of traveled all over the, the country to different archives and libraries and, and did research and, and – uh, and and um, it was really fascinating just to see how these folks, um, you know, thought about the scripture. And and the bottom line, you might be asking yourself, so so how did they read the Bible differently? You know, they you they they read the book. For the answer, you can get the book. You can go to Amazon.com, look up Joseph L. Thomas. Perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. And we can actually put a link to that. Yeah, in the we can. Yeah, we can. Link oh, to that. So sure. yeah, we can definitely absolutely do that. Thank you. Thank you. That'd be great. Is there real quick? And I'm. Is there a Cliff Notes version by chance? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm actually, just <laughs> actually, I I uh, I made this book uh, brief. So it's only about 110, 120 pages. Oh, wow. and, uh, and something that I pledged to myself when I started kind of moving up the food chain of, of academia was I, I've always wanted to try to find a way to talk in a way that everyone can understand or write in a way that everybody can understand. And I've always said to myself, I want to be able to talk to my dad, who's 91 now, and was wow. educated in a one-room one schoolhouse. So in my mind, I've always thought, I want to be able to talk at the highest levels with scholars, but I always want to be able to translate it down to my dad. Right. Wow. And so that's yeah. always been my, my hope. Now, this book is probably a little, a little beyond what my dad could grasp, but it's meant to be written in a popular way that right. you don't have to have all the background to be able to go in and, and, and get it. Yeah. You know, wow. so. And it's uh, called Perfect Harmony? Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect Harmony. And the bottom line was, as, as these folks read the scriptures, uh, they realized that holiness, they were all desiring holiness. Holiness should lead to unity. Sin separates. Holiness unifies. If you kind of think about your personal wow. life and even your personal relationships— that's actually true. Sure yeah. Yeah. And and so they were they were thinking about it not only on a personal level, which they were, but they started to think about it on a corporate level, a church level. And so that started them preaching that message. And with that message, people started being drawn to it from all sorts of nationalities and races. And you gotta remember back in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, you know, people like 
Germans, you know, in, you know, European nation folks, like they they were just off the boat, right. you know. So it wasn't like we're all Americans. It's like you know, hey, there's Georg. He's from Germany. Now he's in America. Right? So you still had this old national connection. So yeah. this had a this really reverberated, you know, even beyond just racial lines, even wow. across nationalistic lines. And so you 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 see this. In fact, it was so bad that uh, in the First World War, uh, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, a guy by the name of Charles Mason, was uh, who's an African American guy, was uh, followed by the FBI. A file uh, created because his right hand man was a German was of German descent, not just German descent. Uh, he was from Germany. He had he had immigrated over. And had become a Christian and, and, and was part of this Church of God in Christ. But because it was German. Right. So here's, you know, so yeah. hmm. uh, it, it's really a fascinating story. Great, great stories in there. The name Perfect Harmony off, uh, comes from a quote from uh, an African-American couple, George and Laura Goings, who I, I kind of fell in love with as I was doing the research. And there's a lot more information on them. I, I want to do at least a really good, solid kind of biographical piece on them at some point. Wow. Um, she has this great quote where she's talking about uh, she's at this uh, church service and she's noting all the variety of nationalities and races and age groups and all of this. And she says um, it was perfect harmony. Wow. Hmm. And only God could do it. Wow. wow. And that, that was the key. And yeah. so. Um, so that all kind of came out of that. And, wow. and so I'm doing a little work here with uh, uh, local churches and, and um, might be doing some other work. I can't talk about it yet because it's not for sure that I have a little more of a public part to it. Uh, dealing with this same idea today. Yeah. You know? how, do we, how do we, how do we uh, transition right from monoracial cultures in our churches to the great biblical, um, you know, uh, yeah. view um, that we find, in, you know, Ephesians 2, tearing down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, Gen- uh, uh, Galatians three twenty eight, no longer yeah. Jew or Gentile, and of course, right. in the book of Revelation, right, that great around the throne, all the right. people and nation and tongues yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, wow. A couple, couple quick questions along that line. One, a quick comment, you know, the the how do we strive for a diverse congregation in a town that's not diverse? That might be a whole separate question. Uh, I'm just throwing that out there, not necessarily for you to take up now. The other one, and you're going to have to correct me if I read this wrong, and I confess to you I didn't finish the book. Uh, but okay. as I read your book, the surprise to me, what I was expecting to read was that the racial harmony and the, and the unifying sort of happened uh, almost as a side effect of worshiping the Lord, but there was a degree of intentionality there, wasn't there, that, that the racial reconciliation was, was, was one of their goals, a conscious goal of this, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, that's really good. It was, it was very intentional. Um, you know, may, maybe early on they may have been a surprise a little bit by how their message was received right. a, a, across boundaries, but once they got up and going, very intentional, and uh, e- even to the point of uh, church discipline. I, I can think of one um, report that comes in from South Carolina, 
and this guy reports uh, uh, back to the, the home church. He says, um, had to discipline the congregation because some of the folks uh, buckled under to the local prejudice, prejudice um, uh, uh, viewpoints that were in South Carolina. And basically, this person was right back saying, you know, I had to do, uh, I had to make a Pauline move. I had to place this person outside the church. Wow. wow. And it, why, why? Because this person was saying, I can't worship with blacks. Wow. And so they were very intentional, very serious about it. Wow. And, and so it wasn't some sort of haphazard, you know, yeah. serendipitous type of, of event. It was very much driven by reading the scriptures and understanding that this is what God, you know, calls his uh, church to. And, yeah. and so... Um, so that's really exciting to see because that, that ultimately leads into the Azusa Street Revival where it's, it's known for <clears throat> its uh, interracialism. And most scholars, uh, up, up to the time of my book, uh, have, have, <laughs> uh, have argued that it was because of spirit baptism, right? You're, kind of what you're talking about, right? right. Out, flowing out of worship came this, this, uh, this sort of great love for each other. Now that's true. Sure. That that was uh, that was part of it. But if you read the Azusa Street papers, which I have, uh, what you see is that William Seymour, who led that uh, revival, African American guy, uh, he is bringing this whole uh, interracial theological argument of the scriptures from his background, which is all these holiness churches. So the birth of Pentecostalism, the interracial part of it, is a bringing over from their, their holiness background. By holiness, you know, churches like the Church of God, Church of God in Christ, and, and uh, churches like that um, that we may have heard of before. And so, yeah, it's been very intentional. And at, at Azusa Street, it was very intentional. You know? Now, wow. the sad part is, by probably the 1915-1920s, we see uh, even some of these groups succumbing to the pressure of the culture. It's, yeah. that, it's that severe. Some of that is intentional, too. Uh, there, there's a, a, a black holiness preacher who writes back uh, to his um, congregation, to the leadership, and he's part of the leadership. He's like one of the seven leaders of the church. Um, and he says, you know what? He goes, I, th- th- I think this is just too hard. For, for this country at this time. Mm. And they were all convinced that Christ was coming back tomorrow, I mean, like immediately. And so he said, you know what? If we're going to reach everybody with the gospel, we should probably just do it along our own racial lines. Wow. And, and so, yeah. So you see, um, uh, sadly, that, that even, even though this was sort of over a 40-year period, yeah. it, it, it fizzles out. Wow. So, but to your other question, just real quick, I would say, you know, yeah, absolutely. You you know, you have to be pragmatic. If, if you just, you know, if you're in an all white town, um, good chance your church is going to be all white. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so I I don't think anybody should feel guilty about that. Right. You have to. And we've got, I mean, we've got, you know, our towns, we have our, you know, we've got several families. Of Latino descent, several families. Yeah, of, now we do, uh, and that wasn't always the case. And Asian, and it wasn't always the case. However, still, 
the vast majority. I mean, 90 plus, right. plus percent Caucasian. Right. And so, We're in the middle of Illinois. so Right. right. I mean, it's just, like you said, you got to be pragmatic about it. you got to be, hey, I'd love to see uh, a, a multi-ethnic church and everything like that. But just geographically, location-wise, demographically, yeah. it's just not something that, you know, unless we go out and try to yeah. knock on doors in Champaign-Urbana or something, say, hey, come on all the way out to St. Joe. Well, I mean, it's just... It's funny. I think I told you guys this the other day. My wife was in a store the other day with Rainy, my daughter, who is black. And uh, this, and she was... The gal who was working there was really fascinated with Rainy because you know, she was well-spoken. She was asking these questions, and this, this woman was like, oh, you are so sweet. You are so sweet. And this was an African-American lady at the store. And, and Rainy said to, my, said to my wife, I think we need to invite her to church. And so Beth does. Hey, just want to ask you if you uh, if you if you've got a home church. And she said, No, I'm looking for one. Oh. She goes, Well, I'd love to have you. We'd love to have you visit ours, you know. But uh, we're in St. Joe. She goes, Oh, that's not far. I'd love to come. And then she asked her, Is it a diverse <laughs> congregation? <laughs> and and Beth, without thinking, says, Oh yeah. <laughs> And then as she's telling me the story, she goes, and then I'm thinking, she probably meant racially diverse. I said, well, I'm sure she did, you know, but she oh wasn't even gosh. thinking of those terms. Like, yeah, oh, well, sure, we got we got older people, younger people, we got rich people, poor people. And if you come, yeah, there'll be two of you in our church. Uh, well, three, three or four. Or four. Yeah, we've right. had a couple younger ladies come with right. their family right. member. That's yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. we might have to edit that part out. And post. I don't know. If that's <laughs> you you know what? Say, you have to We're say about it at least being real once a that's podcast edit that, out and post. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I would say um, that uh, you know, uh, again, right? You got to be realistic about your context, uh, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a kind of full orbed understanding of what the scriptures teach. Absolutely right, and right. that that can't be taught to your congregation. Yeah. And then one one other uh, point. This is sort of just a demographic uh, point. Uh, there are now you know more babies being born who are non-Caucasian than there are Caucasian babies. So in the United States, this is the future. This is the future. And uh, when you, if you're in any city of any size, you know if you're a place like Champaign Urbana, uh, it, the future is today. It's it's already here. If you're in the small towns, of course, I grew up in a small town, so I, I completely understand what you're talking about. You know, it's it's a it's a little bit of different uh, scenario at this point, but I'm convinced. You know, 20 years from now, uh, it, it it's just the demographic reality, and so churches have to start thinking these things through. About Joe, yeah. Jesus will be back before that becomes a problem. <laughs> and if, you, and if the Lord tarries twenty <laughs> years from now, right. and, and and honestly, I don't even know if it's something that as a church we've had to teach from the pulpit or do whatever. You're just kind of like people are people. We accept people for who they are. Bring them in. You love them. You know what I'm saying? Like that's a can of worms, there, man. Yeah, it's, and we've still got the Reformation to talk about. Well, okay, right. That's true. We might be able to split this into a two parter. Uh, I thought we'd already planned to yeah, split it two parts. This, this might be right. three parts. Speaking of might which, be, yeah. should we transition to yeah, probably the second part? Hey, you'll want to join us for the uh, yep. for uh, next week's podcast as we continue our conversation with Dr. Joe Thomas. Thanks for being with us. Uh, sorry we did not get to uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation uh, today. We may not for the next podcast either, in which case we'll have to have <laughs> Joe back uh, for a whole other session. But uh, trust you've been enlightened by the testimony. And the background we shared, I know this has been a very uh, uh, gratifying conversation yeah, for those of us here in the studio. 
Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Thomas, for being here. Appreciate it yeah, very thanks, much. Good, thank you for having me. Great have points. A, have great a great day. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next time on the Living Word Family Podcast. Thank you.